Welcome everyone to another episode of the IOIT podcast. My name is Sriram and as always I'm joined by Edward Gordon and Jim Brent. Hi guys. Hey, how you doing Sriram and Jim? Hey Sriram, how are you? How are you guys doing? Are you all recovered from coronavirus effects, Edward? Uh, yeah, I think I've been uh, getting better uh, over time. Definitely still feel a little tired, but Every day I, I get more energy. Hopefully it won't be what they call a long hauler, but you know, only way to find out is time. So, but fortunately I'm able to be out and about and get back to working on different things. And yeah, so feeling pretty good. Thank you for asking. That's great. How are you, Jim? How are you doing? Doing well. Fun week at work. It's challenging, but enjoying every minute of it. That's well, great. What about thanks. you, Sharon? How are you, man? Good. I do not have coronavirus. My tests all came back negative, and my co-worker's test also came back negative. Turns out he just had the common flu, not COVID-19. You know, there's actually a vaccine for that one that's readily available. <laughs> that is true, and I did get that one. Well done. So what are we talking about today? Well, I think we're going to talk about something that's closer to your work, Jim. We're going to talk about SpaceX Starlink system. So what is Starlink, Jim? Starlink is a satellite internet. Uh, and what it will be doing is providing internet access to, or in a different way than it is currently to most people's homes. Instead of going through Verizon or whatever, which goes through wires around the country and around the globe, this actually will be... You'll have a ground station transmitting information up to a satellite. Then that satellite will transmit information back down to a user terminal. Usually those will be mounted on a house or some area that has open access to the sky. So you couldn't have a user terminal, which could be on the top of a house in a rural area, but couldn't be necessarily on the side of a building in a city because the user terminal will not be able to see the sky. Edward, this just sounds like Dish TV. Why is it special? Why are we talking about it? Yeah, right. I mean, that's. I thought, oh, maybe I've, I've heard this before, right? Haven't we had HughesNet and Dish TV? But I think the interesting thing is that I haven't personally ever used Dish or had Dish, but a lot of people will, I've heard will say that it's slow, that it takes a long time to do your ping or your latency for you to send information and then get that information back. And so, you know, it takes a long time for you to be able to click on a link and go to the next web page. So what the interesting thing with this one is, from my understanding, it's going to be a lot faster. I think that there have been some cases where they've had some very fast speeds, maybe even four milliseconds, anywhere from 25 to 35, I think has been average. And they claim that they'll be able to do one gigabit per second which is what you get when you have the coolest, fanciest Google Fiber going into your building, which would be really interesting because right, anyone could put a satellite anywhere as long as you can have an open sky. Mm-hmm. And so not only are they giving you faster internet than the commercially available products right now, but they're also able to do it with lower latency. How are they able to do this? Well, in a number of ways. HughesNet, for instance, uses geosynchronous satellites, which are much further away from the Earth mm-hmm. than the planned Starlink constellation, which is in LEO, which is low Earth orbit, whereas 
it's anywhere from 160 kilometers above the Earth to just under a thousand is technically the the range in which it's defined. Where Geo is much, much, much further out. Yeah, I think from what I saw, geosynchronous, it's, you know, in miles, it's 22,000 miles, and then low Earth orbit is 690 miles tops, maybe. And why does all that matter where it is in the orbit? So that matters because you're several times closer to the Earth, so therefore the distance traveled by the information is a lot shorter. So the, one of the things that Starlink is doing is using different bands than typically used for the high Earth orbit, the geosynchronous satellites. They're using the KA, KU, V-band, and E-bands, which are all much higher in frequency than what HughesNet is using. Why does that make it so much faster? And Maybe. Is it true or fair to say that the higher in frequency you get, the more information you could fit, send as a signal? Definitely. Your bandwidth increases as you increase in frequency. But the problem becomes when you have higher in frequency, it doesn't travel as far. V-band in particular hasn't been used before, and Starlink had to get special permission from FCC to start using that spectrum. And I know that V-band is 40 to 75 gigahertz. So it's less congestion. So low frequency travels far. Think of your AM and FM frequencies. They travel far, but they can only contain little information. As you get higher in frequency, you can put more information, but it doesn't travel as far. And that's a really good example of why you need user terminals mounted to a roof and not inside. All of us have an FM radio or AM radio that you can put inside and it receives the signal well enough. Sure, you might have to move it here and there a little bit, but for the most part, you get the signals in your area. Whereas if you think about it, this is coming from a much, much further place and you have to have almost direct line of sight to the satellite. Mm -hmm makes me think of moving around in my house and you know some spots you get better wi-fi signal than others depending upon how much it has to go through all will depend upon how strong from, of a signal you have and how much information you can get right yeah from where your wi-fi modem is to your computer or cell phone yeah it's mm -hmm. definitely true so what about the old problem where people would say they couldn't get dish when it was raining i think some of those frequencies are still affected by water droplets. So KU and KA, I know, are particularly still affected by the water droplets, which is why rain causes an issue. But V-band, I am not sure if that same effect happens with water. And the other thing is a lot of it has to do with how you're receiving the signal, too. So RF propagation has to do with how you're sending the information what it's traveling through, all the stuff that affects the waves as the wave travels from the source, and also what are you using to receive the source as the destination. So if you have a high-powered antenna on the transmit side, and then you're beaming the information, and the information gets detuned a little bit, and you have a powerful enough system on the receive side that you can capture the information 
then you're still maintaining a link. So it's a two-part problem that you need to solve. Not only do you need to solve what antennas you're using to transmit and what frequencies you're using to transmit, but also what is the system you're using to receive on the user side. And I know that Starlink spent a lot of time trying to figure out the right antenna for the user terminals. They wanted to keep the cost low, which kind of limits the capabilities because if you can put out the giant dishes like you see in the movie Contact, if you want to put out those giant dishes, yes, you can receive signal from Voyager as it's leaving the solar system. But if you want to keep it under $200 and be able to mount it onto the top of your roof, then that really limits the types of antennas you can use. So they went with a very clever system called the phased array. Phased arrays aren't anything new, but instead of using a standard DISH antenna, like DISH TV, DISH network use, they went with a phased array system. And phased array antennas are essentially just an array of small antennas that are electronically controlled and steered. And so you can, using electronic steering, really focus the beam and track a satellite as it's moving and get the information. That's a really good point that you're talking about phased array and beam steering. Mm -hmm. I noticed that some of these other internet providers, such as MRSAT and HughesNet, have a few satellites up on the order of ones to tens. Mm -hmm. Why is it that Starlink applied and got granted 12,000 satellites? That's an insane number. And they've also asked for permit for Mm 30,000. So... Why is it that they need that many when HughesNet can do it with a lot less? Yeah, and just to give you an idea of how ridiculous that number is, 12,000 plus potentially another 30,000, is up to now, we as humanity have launched around 9,000 satellites total. And SpaceX wants to launch 12,000 before, what, 2022 or something like that. So there are multiple reasons why they need that many satellites. Because you can imagine that each satellite has a cone of coverage. And that cone of coverage decreases as you get closer to Earth, right? I mean, imagine you have a cone. As you lift it above the table, now that cone covers wider distance. So you cover more of Earth. But as you bring the cone closer to Earth, it covers a shorter area and so you need more satellites to cover the earth that is one reason why they need that many satellites and then the other reason is that they want to be able to make sure that information gets transmitted quickly from satellite to satellite so they're using this laser-based communication system so instead of using a fiber optic cable to transmit information through that cable They're just bouncing laser from one satellite to another. And they want to make sure that each satellite has enough neighbors that they're able to send information that was received, let's say, in Kentucky to Siberia. And so a satellite picks up the information above Kentucky. It bounces it off to another satellite, bounces it off to another satellite, bounces it off to another satellite, and then gets it to a satellite that's above Siberia, and then that satellite pipes the information down. And so in order to play that game of mesh communication, the more nodes you have, 
the more reliable your system becomes. So if I understand right, it's sort of like when you turn on a flashlight and you point it at a wall and then you start walking towards it, your cone gets smaller, mm-hmm. right? And so since your cone's smaller, now you need more flashlights pointed at the wall to light up that same amount of area. Yep, exactly. That's the perfect way of putting it, Edward. So one of the other interesting things about LEO is that the atmosphere of Earth doesn't just stop at a certain altitude and then, oh, no more air past this. It kind of just gets lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. So even at LEO altitudes there is still a very small amount of air, not anything you can breathe or live on, but there is molecules that continually hit the satellite and slow it down. And that starts to cause the satellite to deorbit or start to fall in towards Earth. So that's one of the other reasons they need so many is to replace them as they start to come down. But I'd also read that they did some pretty cool thing where they used this Krypton Hall thruster to be able to keep it up in orbit. An ion Hall effect thruster, yeah. It sounds like something from Starship Troopers. What is it? If you look up uh, pictures of it on Google, it'll look like glowing flame in a way, coming out. And so it's really cool because a Hall effect is based on change of a magnetic field. And so they make this magnetic system inside this thruster to make it so that you can keep those ions of gas in a one single stream. And they basically just accelerate it and throw it out the back. And because physics, every action needs an equal and opposite reaction. Throwing it out the back makes the other part go forward. And so... Which is the satellite. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's that propulsion system of ionizing, energizing, and expelling that gas to make it go forward, get into a higher orbit so it can keep its location and be able to communicate with its buddies and neighbors in space. So once that satellite has reached end of life and it's either A, it stops functioning or B, it's down the line and, oh, we need to decommission the satellite. It no longer has the latest hardware in order to keep up with our new systems. We actually need to deorbit this and have it burn up in the atmosphere. So that's another reason for those thrusters is FCC was worried that they wouldn't deorbit faster. Again, putting 12,000 satellites up there, they were worried about a higher possibility of collisions. Say that SpaceX had proposed, like, this will deorbit in one to five years, whereas now with the thrusters, it'll deorbit in months, not years. So that's another huge benefit is that once it's at the end of its life, it gets out of the way and allows something else to take that spot in orbit, which the DOD actually has a debris tracking software system that tracks all the debris around space because you're traveling at such high speeds, a collision of two things that are made from metal that if you took you and me, sure, I'm holding these things running each other, wouldn't do anything. But having them cross paths at 100 miles an hour, thousands of miles an hour, you create a pretty big debris path. So the other thing this thruster does is it allows it to move out of a path of another piece of debris, whether that be a meteorite, a satellite, a decommissioned satellite that can't move out of Starlink's way. It can now move itself out of the way so that it doesn't hit that. And that's actually all automated. There's no human error, or they've done that so that there's no introduced human error, which I thought was really cool. And I did a little bit of research on that debris tracking software system, and they say they can track things that are less than two inches in diameter. Wow. I mean, it's just, wow. And it's only getting better. I mean, this article I found was published three years ago, so I'm sure it's a little bit better now. It was just absolutely incredible. All that, I was about to say space, <laughs> all that area... <laughs> 
<laughs> in space and it being able to track stuff that is two inches in diameter. Granted, that's only in Leo. In Geo, it's closer to, I think, like a foot and a half, but there's a lot less satellites up that high. It takes a lot of energy and power to get up there. So that's something I thought was absolutely incredible. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I have family friend that also worked in the satellite field and in space propulsion. You know, it makes me think about sending astronauts up to the International Space Station and with the recent launch of Crew Dragon from SpaceX, you know, having to fly through that field. I mean, almost like a minefield, right? Because it's a bunch of little pieces that you have to make sure you know where they are so they don't fly into the side of a of the rocket and shear off some part of it or fly into another satellite. Fortunately, the ISS, I don't believe, is on the same path as most satellites. But, you know, you still have to go through it to get there. And I think that's something interesting. But what doesn't that mean that we're just filling up that area? It'll just be packed with junk? Well, there's actually several startups actually that are looking into that problem and have gotten some decent funding to try and go up and pull those satellites down but that's a podcast for a different day <laughs> a different so, type of dumpster diving yeah. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> in new york city they have a museum with an old shuttle that you can go and, and you can see things are amazing that have been put up there but when i was at there and i was here they also had these telescopes set up to be able to look at jupiter and mars be able to see all of these fascinating phenomenon is that going to get in the way of being able to see so that's an interesting problem and that's actually a pretty big outcry from astronomers is that once starlink has started going into constellation is that they were looking at things like that and they were able to see the satellites clearly and because there was the way they array them sometimes there's three four five six in a row and in order to look at a planet or something you can do a pretty short exposure time but if you're looking at something that's much further away you know another galaxy then you want to grab a picture of that from earth you need a long several hours sometimes of exposure time and if you have satellites going through that you can see because again pictures you leave an exposure open it captures all light coming in and that's how you're able to capture light from a galaxy that's so far away is you let all those little light particles come into and take the picture so what they were seeing is these giant streaks across their pictures of the starling satellites and they were getting pretty upset some of the things they've done in order to mitigate that they had this proposal for dark sat, which is essentially using darker materials that don't reflect as much sunlight. Once the sunlight reflected off the satellite, you wouldn't be able to see it on Earth. And that apparently did not work very well at all. <laughs> so what they ended up doing instead is making a sunshade, which continually reduces the brightness of the Starlink satellites. That seems to be working a little better. Starling is doing things to mitigate that because they don't want to interrupt astronomers from looking at distant galaxies, distant planets, things like that, even stars within our own galaxy. Why don't they just jump to Harry Potter and get an invisibility cloak, right? That's actually what they try to do with Darksat. It was a coating that they were hoping would absorb all the light and it didn't work. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, well... Maybe the first use of the cloaking technology whenever that comes out. Maybe that'll be the good time to replace all the satellites is when the new ones can cloak. That'll make it avoid them that much harder. Yeah, that comes down to another question. Astronomers are very beneficial to society. Nowadays, isn't the internet almost a necessity in this day and age? What's the percentage of people across the globe that don't have access to internet? So 
I think only 47 or 48 percent of the people in the world have access to the internet. So the vast majority of the people don't have access to the internet right now. Yeah. Right. So I mean, is that a, is the internet now considered a basic necessity? And again, I'm not trying to step on astronomers' toes, and I think that that is also a very helpful thing. Providing internet to a lot more people around the globe is also very important. So I think it's that Starlink is trying to do good by the astronomers, but also doing a really great service to humanity. And Starlink will be able to provide that to rural areas. I think that's a good thing to have. It's almost a necessity, especially now within this pandemic. Another good example is everyone's remote learning right now, or not everyone, but a large portion of the world population is remote learning. And you do that through the internet. And I think now sort of philosophical questions and ethical in some ways of, but I think you could make a case that said that to be able to lower you know, the gap in opportunity between a lot of people is to be able to give everyone access to information. Some have said that we we're in an information age where now is an unprecedented time where if you have access to the internet, you can find out almost anything. You can learn about physics. You could learn about astronomy. You could learn about art. You could learn about history. I mean, everything. You could learn about Starlink. <laughs> exactly, right? There's so much information out there that's available, but not available to everyone. I'm from Tennessee, and there's definitely areas in Tennessee that are so rural that nobody gets internet. And now those areas, if they never have internet, and maybe they're not able to get to school because of, of one reason or another, they're going to be able to have the chance to better themselves and to go into maybe an area or learn about something and become maybe a professor at Oxford or be able to work at the Louvre, be able to do these aspects that wouldn't naturally be expected. Yeah. But, so we've been talking about how good Starlink would be for humanity, but it's got to make financial sense. So, I mean, is there an actual business plan for this or is it just free internet for all? Go get it. <laughs> well, I think free internet for all sounds good. I don't like paying the bills on the internet every month. Those aren't the best. But it's surprising because some people might think that the first number that I'll say, people might say, oh my gosh, what? And that's $10 billion. So $10 billion is the estimated cost of the initial setup of Starlink. And let's not forget that they have to continually be replacing satellites. But to be able to get it up and running and have customers, it's $10 billion, which fortunate for Starlink, they got a little bit more close to $900 million from the FCC specifically to provide access to rural areas that don't have this access, which has been drive of at least the U.S. government for many years to try to answer that need. But the people at Starlink also believe that they'll be able to make $30 billion per year, which that's just a very large number. We have the lottery, and I saw it the other day, and what was it, $900 million, I think, is what you can win? For this go, but $30 billion. That's a lot of money. That's more money that they would be making in revenue than most companies are worth. <laughs> Some countries are worth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's incredible. Yes, they're going to be charging people for internet and they're going to be doing like $40, $50, $100 a month or whatever they're charging. But I think one of their biggest drivers of revenue is actually going to come from high-speed traders on Wall Street. Interesting. Working in remote locations? 
Well, I think just even between, let's say you're trading between New York and London or New York and Chicago, they are predicting that a Starlink connection between those centers would be milliseconds faster than the fastest fiber optics they have right now. That's fascinating because New York City has the Wall Street, that's the famous Wall Street, and the New York Stock Exchange, and companies have been competing to get data center locations as close to the New York Stock Exchange so that they can have the fastest connection because high-speed trading, when these systems work, that millisecond that you can save means that you get the price instead of somebody else getting the price and can get into the fundamentals of how brokerages systems make money but a lot of times it's on the bread so what's the difference between a bid and an ask and so how fast you can get there and if you can see the price and you can get it before anybody else can then you make money on the spread and nobody else does yeah and the farther you are in location so now new york and chicago might not be the best example but new york to london or new york to shanghai now physical distance is much larger a fiber optic cable would take i don't know how many milliseconds but the starlink connection even with that four milliseconds up and down even with all that you're still transmitting information quicker than through fiber optic cable brings in the money <laughs> yeah and high-speed traders that is uh, again it's another podcast on its own but high school high-speed traders are nuts when it comes to milliseconds they spend billions and billions of dollars building new fiber optic lines across the atlantic ocean that shave off like six milliseconds and wow. if starlink is able to provide that 10 millisecond, 15 millisecond advantage that they are advertising, that is worth $30 billion in itself. Well, it's really cool talking about this high-speed systems. It makes me think of I, when I was reading there, Starlink is trying to work together with Microsoft and the Azure system which is for cloud computing. And it made me think about a remote area. And now that we talk about this high-speed trading system and the possibility that it could be a use case for it, it makes me think about, there's a discovery show about gold mining that's in the Klondike, that's a gold mining area on the border between Canada and Alaska. And so now it seems like we could have a cloud computing system working for the gold miners in Alaska while the gold traders in New York are figuring out what to buy and sell at the moment it pulled out of the ground. So this sounds like a perfect system. Works for everyone. All sponsored by Starlink. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I did not realize that that is a really cool use case for this. And that's where they want lots of terminals in order to get all that traders on, then all the more power to them. Okay. And it makes sense of, I don't know how many people think in the business sense, but right, you have the different tiers where you can have consumer pricing and then you can have enterprise pricing mm -hmm. because they're a higher user. They have a larger need. There's a cool example where JetBlue, they paid so much for a connection to satellite internet connection that when their planes were flying over, the satellites almost beamed on just to them so that <laughs> they could get the amount of bandwidth for their users and they paid the more money for it. Unfortunate in a lot of ways because money can create a lot of differences and disparities, but it helps in the sense that now people that are in rural areas that maybe can afford $100 a month to be able to access the internet, 
that's partially subsidized in ways by these other higher users might be using it in New York, but now the person that's in rural Washington state is able to get internet and they're not overlapping on each other. And the hardware is in space. There's no trucks running out to rural Tennessee to fix your line. Yeah. Um, We should say that all of this is still speculation because none of this has been publicized yet in terms of high-speed traders or anything, but these are just use cases that people have seen, especially with the eye-popping revenue targets that SpaceX and Starlink have put out. And along those lines, we're right in the beginning of 2021, and I think officially not part of Starlink. I don't know anyone there, but it seems like they've started to do closer to a public beta because now they have, I think, a thousand satellites in orbit and now they're able to start making these connections and be able to open it, right? So they're very early on for getting out to these 12,000 satellites and these high-speed systems and meshing all together, but they're getting there, which is the amazing thing. Slowly but surely, I think it's 60 satellites at a time that they launch, but they're on their way. To making this amazing feat of engineering and connectivity. I think we're going to have to have some podcasts off of this about lots of things. I mean, we could talk about all the different technologies that go into one satellite, and mm-hmm. that would be cool. Because, I mean, we talked about how the internet goes up and down, how the lasers communicate between satellites the onboard propulsion system, the debris mitigation system. We could do podcast after podcast on this stuff. So the RF propagation. There you go. Wall Street. Got a lot of- <laughs> Wall Street, yeah. <laughs> Wall Street, exactly. I think this was a really fun one, and I learned a heck of a lot and still doing reading on it. I find it a fascinating. And what about you guys? I just think it's amazing. I previously worked on trying to figure out how to get connectivity, and I think we're all familiar the challenges of maybe being somewhere that doesn't have connection needing to have a remote connection and it's amazing because there could be and there probably will be and not in the too distant future that anyone you could be in the middle of nowhere in the australian outback or siberia or in the amazon jungle as long as you're high up enough above (laughs) the canopy canopy. (laughs) but there's these locations that maybe you wouldn't think of that if you wanted to live remotely and you could put a satellite on you're still connected to the world no things that are happening it is exciting and this is something that will be constantly changing along with 5g i think the next couple of years the way we connect to the internet is going to rapidly evolve. It's going to be exciting. It'll be interesting. Won't be surprised if it happens. If maybe all of our internet comes from satellites instead of ground wire. The infrastructure alone, thinking about, we even might have calls always going to have a satellite phone. Maybe everything will be satellite. We won't have these giant fight about cell towers all over the, the nation. Because <laughs> yeah. I know that there's lots of litigation a lot of times when... Companies try to put new up. Fascinating technology. And on that note, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you guys for IOIT. I'm Sriram. I'm Edward. And I'm Jim. See you all in the next episode. Bye. See ya.